thank you all very much for being here. I wanted to, uh, I'd have the great pleasure of introducing Reverend Tenku Ruff, who is here visiting us as part of our visiting teachers program. And she'll be here actually a little bit longer because she's going to stay for the Genzoe retreat as well. Tenku is a, um, has been practicing Zen Buddhism for over well over 20 years in both Japan, where she was ordained and received Dharma transmission, and as well as in the United States uh, at a number of different monasteries and temples. And she is uh, a trained chaplain in palliative care um, from Maitreya College? Maitreya. Maitreya. Yeah. Uh, in Portland, uh, Oregon. And she is also the currently the board president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association and has been a very active member of that organization for many years, um, as well as many other Zen organizations that I'm not even going to enumerate here. <laughs> uh, she lives in New York City, uh, north and near Yonkers, with her mm -hmm. husband, who is a practitioner and lawyer. And, um, and we're very fortunate to have her here in Austin. This is her first time in Austin for more than like just passing through. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So today I wanted to talk about what to say when we don't know what to say. Um, and that's how I prepared the talk. But then yesterday when I was on the plane here, something happened. And I think I'm going to talk about that and call it what to do when we don't know what to do instead. <laughs> Um, yeah, so those situations arise all the time, obviously, when we feel sort of trapped or stuck, and we're not sure how to act, right? Mm -hmm. So we get a little paralyzed. And um, can you hear me in the back? Mm -hmm. If you can't, then just let me know. My voice doesn't carry so easily. So... Um, Having said that, I'll start with what happened yesterday. <laughs> and it actually starts a week ago. A week ago, I had been in L.A. for meetings and was flying back from L.A. to New York, which is a pretty long flight. It was a day when uh, there was a snowstorm in the Midwest, so all the flights were full because we were being redirected through the south. Uh, so my flight, too, was really full. There wasn't even one space left. And, you know, people were a little tense because of, you know, being rerouted and all of that. But we got off okay. So um, I got on the plane, and I travel in robes, usually. Um, so I'm in robes. And if any of you have flown lately, you, you'll know how wedged in you are, you really have to kind of fold yourself very carefully into your seat. So I was wedged in between two guys, um, a guy here, a white guy here, and another white guy here. And this guy is really, was really big, really tall, and also um, quite a large person. So I was really much in. <coughs> so I sat down, and as I sat down... Um, the guy on my left, his, something about his uh, body motions or his body language just kind of made me look over. 
and you know you're so close now you don't have any privacy at all you can't even work on your computer without the person being able to just to read everything so i looked over and i was like oh my goodness he was looking at porn and i was really shocked and i was like I must have seen it wrong, right? It's just something, you know, Facebook or... And so I looked again, and no, it, it was. And there were pictures, and there was text, and I was like, well, you know, it's just a chat. And I looked too much, you know, for my own comfort. <laughs> and just to confirm that I was right, and I did confirm that I was right. And so I felt so um, awkward, what am I supposed to do? I was trapped there with this guy. There's nowhere to move. The um, flight attendants are, you know, it's a busy flight and we're already a little delayed. So they're not readily available. We're just about to leave. So do I stop the whole flight? Get up, get past this really large guy over here who's going to have to stand up and let me out, and then I, you know, have to search, and I'm, I'm kind of visible, because I'm in robes, and I just, I didn't know what to do, but I felt so uncomfortable, um, so I sat there, and I was, you know, thinking, what can I do, what can I do, and finally, the, the flight started to, the plane started to move, and they said, you know, turn off your cell phone, so I, I leaned over, and I was like, could you please turn that off? And he turned it, he didn't turn it off, but he turned off the screen. And I felt, you know, somewhat relieved. But, um, yeah, so I was just noticing, you know, why couldn't I just turn and talk to him? Or why did I feel so uncomfortable? Or, you know, why did I feel so kind of powerless and trapped there and uh, vulnerable? So I put it, I got back, and and the guy, the guy was, you know, he was pretty well behaved. He drank a lot through the flight, but he didn't interact or anything like that. So I got back, and um, I put it on my Facebook feed to see what people would say. And people were, you know, pretty much aghast. So I got the general feedback that, it's not okay to look at porn in public. So if anybody has a question about that, <laughs> then I want to say right now that if you want to look at porn, do that in the privacy of your own home and not in a public space. So that was a general consensus. But other than that, people's um, reaction was really it was kind of split along gender lines, I'm going to say. So most of the men said you should have confronted him right away. You have a duty to do that. You know, you should have said, dude, turn that off, or that's not okay. Um, most of the women would have felt really uncomfortable confronting him. And most of the women advocated for telling the flight attendant. Um, which, you know, again, was hard, too, and it had its own drawbacks. Um, one woman suggested that I should have 
um, spilled my drink in his lap, which I thought was the best suggestion of all. <laughs> a little hard, you know, and it would have been had its own problems. But um, so, um, so I've been thinking of that a lot this week, um, in the last week. You know, what was the appropriate response? What should I have done? And it's hard to know, right? So um, one of my students pushed back a little bit, and he wrote and he said, you know, okay, I get that that's not okay, but um, you said it was disgusting, and if you feel disgust toward this man, then isn't that close to aversion or hatred? And I was like, yeah, you're right, it is. Um, So did I feel disgust for the man? Or did I feel disgust for what he was doing? And that's a really good uh, question to have. So um, something I did do was I was like, I can't sit here for a cross-country flight from L.A. to New York. It's so long, feeling so uncomfortable and feeling like, a little freaked out or a little, yeah, maybe disgusted at the person. So I have to break that somehow. So what I did was I had these really um, tasty French fries that were still hot (laughs) from, they had a Shake Shack in uh, LA, which I was very excited about because they have (laughs) vegetarian (laughs) food there and it's good, but it's fried, right? so I offered the large guy a French fry, and he declined. And then I offered the other guy, and, and he was so surprised. But he shifted. Just offering him a French fry broke that wall between us, and his body language changed, and it just felt like, yeah, that we had this illusion that we were all in these little individualized compartments we're actually touching each other on a flight because you're so close. So this guy was in his individualized compartment and I was in my individualized compartment and he was in his individualized compartment. But we're not really. You know, it's not just that we're physically touching. We are, we can see what each other is doing. We can learn a little bit about each other just by what they're doing or what they're reading and And we're actually pretty connected, physically and energetically, which is sort of how we are, you know, all the time. We think we're going around in these individual bubbles, especially we as Americans. We like being individual, but that's a farce. We're not not individual at all. We're actually very intimately connected with each other. As I, um, yesterday as I flew here, I asked the flight attendant, what, what do you recommend? What should I have done? And she said, you definitely have to tell us because we have to do something. You know, that's not only about you, but what if there are children on the plane or what if other people are uncomfortable? And that was a common feedback that I got on my, from my Facebook feed was um, 
Tenku, you have the authority of ropes and you have this training and you should speak up for all the people who can't. So I did feel that pressure. And then the flight attendant, she kept coming back to, um, she's like, you know, we get these complaints. Um, I think she had a, a bit of a um, Caribbean accent. She said, we get these complaints and we have to do something about it because we're, you know, it, it's a long flight and we're all here together. And she, then she kept saying, these type of, I said, does this happen a lot? And she said, yes, unfortunately it does. This and, you know, the smells. And people have the smells. And she kept coming back to the smells. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that really makes sense. Because why was I so uncomfortable here? It's something akin to a smell that came over and got in my nose and um, affected my comfort level on the flight, right? So it's a little bit like a, a smell in the way that we are interconnected. I mean, I know um, Sawaki Koro Roshi is so fond of saying we can't exchange even a fart with another person. And that's true. In a way, we can't. But... You know, if you really um, have studied the science of it, <laughs> we're really interconnected. <laughs> so, um, so in the same way, the energy of this guy affected me, but that also my energy can affect him. And so, yes, I... I do have a duty to bring what training I have and what practice experience I have to that situation too. And not um, without the idea that I'm perfect and that I have all the answers, because I didn't. You know, I'm still female and I still have my own context for how to be in the world and I still felt vulnerable. So... Um, some people treat, this is the stick you get when you become a teacher. And some people think this is a magic wand. That once you get this stick, everything you do is perfect. And even when you say things that aren't perfect, because it ultimately comes from the Dharma, it really is perfect. And we should all learn from that still. Which is true, that's true. Um, but if we think we're perfect, then that prevents us from acknowledging when we're not perfect and when we need to improve a little bit. So that's what happened with my students' comment that about am I, uh, is my disgust actually disparaging this guy? And um, I think so. You know, I don't know if I could have gotten past it any better, but the French fry incident helped. Um, <laughs> Yes. Did he? So he closed, he turned off his screen when yes. the flight was about to take off. But then afterwards, did he just reopen it and continue? No. Afterwards, he um, did not. Oh, that makes a difference. Right. It did. Right. He didn't. I mean, but I was afraid he would because yeah. he did have Wi-Fi. <laughs> I mean, he. Um, yeah. He drank a lot. He um, he made a point of putting his phone really close to me 
and it had uh, his uh, texts, like he had the um, White House feed on there, and sometimes they're a little, uh, I'm going to say it, but offensive kind of texts that come through there. And then he, um, he watched a movie, and then we got off the plane, and he said goodbye. That was it. Yes? I wanted to make two comments. Yes. One, do you feel that possibility because you were in your robes, he did this? Did yes, I did. Yes. I did feel that possibility. Thank you for asking. Um, and just in knowing that, it almost places uh, a an ability to ignore it. Almost. But not for me on that particular <laughs> <laughs> Although I did try. I did try. I did read my novel. Um, and then the other comment was, yeah. I noticed you commented on their race. They were both white men. Yeah. Does it yeah. make a difference? I don't know, but um, lately I've been trying just to name that as part of the conversation. Um, maybe it does, because I wondered if some kind of uh, if a sense of privilege was part of it. Um, but I don't know that, so that's why I put it in. It was intentional, but yeah, it's an open question. You know, this is something we're figuring out, but I've been experimenting with naming that um, sometimes and seeing how that goes. And the Caribbean woman, was she black? Yes, she was. And yeah. you didn't mention that. Yeah, it was her accent that I focused on there. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah, so these are all, right? It's so complex. There's no easy answer here. But what can we do? And you have a question in the back, yes. Well, to, to follow up on uh, the last comment here, if uh, this man was in, somehow intentionally doing this uh -huh. because of your yourself, right? isn't that um, a sense of power? Maybe. You have. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you could, it was, it's very complex. And there were so, I had um, so many comments on this, and people had very strong opinions. And I actually um, wrote to a friend who's a, a journalist and um, kind of connected with a lot of women journalists because um, I wanted to see if something would grow out of it and and yeah I started getting feedback about this happening in other places and I got um feedback about the rise of sexual assault on airplanes and um yeah so it just keeps going so I'm gonna let you stay with that story because you're you know it can just keep going for ages and I'm still working it out myself and to your comment that's interesting because you know my original story was about a black friend that had an incident happen, and I, I didn't know how to respond. So um, I think we're, we're dealing with different aspects of the same thing. Yeah, well, it's very, just, yeah, just let it sit for a while in its confusion. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna, I'll, uh, anyway. So what I wanted to talk about is what we can do. And what we can do is um, be present to the situation. Well, being present doesn't mean, you know, bing, everything's perfect. I've waved the magic wand, and I'm in a, a bubble where 
everything goes right in the world. It means exactly what, what we're talking about here. I don't know if I, what I did was right. I don't know how I could have done it better. Did I make a comment just now that, had, um, that wasn't okay as far as mentioning race? What about gender issues? These are all questions that are in our face every day right now. Is this is the national conversation, right? Okay, this is the the, the uh, global, the uh, universal <laughs> conversation all the way out into space, uh, at least the world. This is in our face all the time. And we can't escape it. I don't care where we are. You know, if we're in a small town, a big town, on the subway, and on a, everywhere, it's here. So what are we going to do about that? And how can we, as practitioners, use the tools of practice that we have to be fully present to that without needing to be perfect? I think once we get into the idea that we can do it perfectly... That's another wall that we build up. We have to be able to acknowledge we are going to make a lot of mistakes here. And that's okay. We're humans. Our nature is to make mistakes. We acknowledge those mistakes. We apologize when necessary. Do what we need to do to fix it or to repair, I guess, and then move on. Try again. Sitting in silence in zazen teaches us how to be present. Teaches us how to be present with our own difficult emotions, with our own discomfort, with our own unanswerable questions. But we know how to do that already. We sit in zazen, then that inevitably comes up. So then how do we take what we've learned in that situation out into the world around us? How do we make zazen within stillness, the zazen within these nice, safe walls, and keep it from becoming walled off from zazen within activity? Because zazen is not about sitting on the cushion only. It's about everything we do in our life. How we interact with the people on the plane. How we interact with our families and everyone we meet. So this is what we have. We have the ability to be present. To let go of our ego and to meet whatever we find. To let go of our ego, i.e., I'm sitting here giving a talk, talking about something that I maybe didn't do very well. Or maybe did, I don't know. Letting go of our ego and keeping going. Bringing a non-judgmental stillness to our everyday interactions is really the essence of our practice. It's something we can really offer. So Buddhist teachings on suffering, on mindfulness, 
on interdependence, compassion. These are all tools that we have to be able to bring a non-judgmental presence to our everyday actions. So it's not just about reading something, hearing a lecture, and then doing it. It's a lot harder than that. So it's not just about learning a particular doctrine or a teaching, but it's about actually um, doing the hard part of you know, really finding those sticky places and leaning into those. And those sticky places are really good ground for work. So here in, this, in the, the Zendo, it's, it's a safe space, pretty much. We can come in, we can really feel the silence, we can settle, we can do zazen, we can practice together. And it can become a little, uh, sometimes a little too comforting in that um, we use it as an escape from that place out there. So I'm going to make a caution there. As soon as we start thinking of the temple as an escape or our sitting practice as an escape, then put a little check mark by that and ask yourself where the sticky place is. Because the sticky place is probably where the work needs to happen. By cultivating our minds during zazen practice, by creating a sense of spacious awareness, we, we create the ground for transformation. So, um, one of my favorite koans that I've worked with, I'm from a tradition that uses koans, which are a little, you know, like a kind of a Zen puzzle, I guess you could call it, um, is one that I hear a lot in the West. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna pick at it a little bit because um, I don't like the translation that people use here. Even though I think the translation is accurate, I think it's a little a little bit off. So the one you've probably heard is from the Blue Cliff Record, and it's case number fourteen, and it's um, about the monk Unmon. So the, a monk asks Unmon, "What is the teaching?" of a Buddha's lifetime. And Unman said, preaching, facing, oneness. So that's often translated as an appropriate response. But that, I don't know why. Maybe because preaching, preaching facing, oneness is an appropriate response. But I'm not sure. But I, I like preaching, facing, facing, oneness. So what does that mean? Um, I'm going to invite you to turn around and look at the Buddha. You don't have to turn physically, just turn your head. <laughs> if you can. If not, then just picture it, okay? So when we see this Buddha, what do we see? Do we see uh, something, a statue up there on the altar? Do we see perfection? Do we see unattainable perfection? Do we see enlightenment? Do we see a guy? Do we see an Indian person? What do we see? 
And what we see is, is oneness, because what we, what we really are seeing is ourselves. And that's why the Buddha's there. We see the Buddha in us, and vice versa. We see the Buddha in other people. My teacher is always fond of saying, um, we can't, you know, in, in Buddhism, we, we gasho, and we bow. And he says, why do we bow to the Buddha? Why do we bow to the Buddha? Because we can't bow to ourselves. And then he'll usually make us try it. So I'm going to ask you to try that. Try to bow to yourself. (laughs) You really can. (laughs) So it's really that simple. Why do we bow? Why do we honor the Buddha in everyone? Because the Buddha in you and you and you is the Buddha in me. It's the same. It's not some different, separate, extra. This is us. Because we're all, we're all connected to each other. And that's what we really have to get beyond here in the West, is this idea that we're separate little individual pods walking around with a little bubble around us. And that everything I do matters to everything everybody else does. So I have to really step up and recognize that. You know, in the same way that if a person's smells drift over, then that affects me. And if my smells drift over, then that affects you. So what can we do? What can we do in there? What can we do to, to, uh, to really meet that? The, the koan that I mentioned has... And the next one is uh, case number 15. And that one is, uh, what is it when no thought is stirring and nothing prevents itself? And that one says, no preaching on oneness. So we have preaching on oneness and no preaching on oneness. And that's what, that's what I don't like about the appropriate response. Is it, needs its, it needs its balance to keep it in place. I meet the Buddha in you, and I speak up when necessary. There's a time to say something, and there's a time to be present and to be quiet. And we're going to keep working on that. Um, I, I went back to. Let me skip ahead a bit. I went back to Japan for my uh, monastic training after spending a few years in the West. And I had the chance to really um, be in the monastery and really in the container of the inescapable place and living next to other people and, you know, interacting with them. You Inevitably, you disagree on things. To really face a lot of um, the sticky places. Things like how to get along with people you don't really like or people who do mean things to you or um, how to contain my anger when I wake up in such a bad mood so that it doesn't stink onto my neighbor because anger is like a stink that keeps going over. But what I found is that in Zen we can, and I'm not saying we always do, 
but we can use the energy and the stillness to sort of jump over some of the really sticky places. And what that does is prevent us from using that really fertile compost to grow our practice better and to be present better. In the same way that we can use the temple as a refuge, or we can use it as an escape. We can use our practice in the same way. We can just say, oh, anger, I just, oh, I feel so much better. But we never really dealt with the, you know, the core of it. So when I got back from Japan, I um, focused on learning some, I went to a Tibetan practice and learned specifics for working with afflictive emotions. And I found them really helpful. And I'm going to talk about those more in this afternoon's workshop. But I just want to, you know, make sure to say that, that those exist and that there's stuff we can do. We don't have to feel trapped, even when we feel trapped. There's, there's always something we can do. So in this case with the guy, yeah, giving the French fry helped because that's, that's a kind of making a connection but something else that I found that I can do is um, is compassion practice. Just simply, may you be free from suffering. May you be at ease. And may you be happy. One of my chaplain friends pointed out that a guy who's obsessively, he was scrolling through porn on his phone and then ordering, he, he ordered a, a double vodka, like two small bottles and one soda, and then he ordered another one, and it was morning. And um, that maybe he wasn't happy. So I can wish for him to be happy. And because we're interconnected, what does that do? If he were genuinely happy, if he were not suffering, then neither would I be, or neither would my neighbor be, or whoever his uh, partner is when he goes home, or his work partners, or, or anybody, if he were genuinely happy. Another practice that I learned how to do is um, equanimity practice, or balancing we can actually, within the space of our zazen, learn to see that this guy and me are literally not separate by exchanging us. It's not easy. <laughs> and it's so helpful. I, so I, I'm trying on. Okay, I, I am this guy, literally. I am. What does it feel like to be in his body? What does it feel like? And in trying that on and really doing it, not just thinking, but really feeling it, I could feel this, I could feel the pain right here in the heart. And also um, a kind of emptiness that wants to be filled a kind of hollow feeling. And then that lets me soften. 
So there are a lot of different ways to do this. Um, not just equanimity, not just compassion. There's a practice of um, loving kindness. There's a practice of um, experiencing joy for others. There are a lot of different ways. And these are all, I'm going to suggest, these are tools we can add to what we already have, within the space of what we already have. And I'm going to say right now, uh, just a minute, I'll come back to questions. Um, as a final, as a final um, encouragement today, <laughs> something that we can really offer to others is the generosity of freedom from fear. So we usually teach generosity as um, dana paramita. It's um, giving and receiving. And it's often, you know, um, giving of material items, giving of food. And the job of um, monks and nuns is to offer the teachings, to offer the space. Um, and the Tibetans also have generosity of freedom from fear. And I want to put this out there, you know, at the end to say that that's something that we can offer too. What does that look like? How can we offer others the generosity of freedom from fear? And then how does that affect everyone around us? Because it does. Again, because we're all so connected that everything we do makes a difference. So think about that a little bit. I mean, on a simple way, um, I remember once when I was in Japan and Japanese do not cross against the light. You know, I've had to really retrain myself living in New York because they just cross everywhere. Um, so once I was with my friend Ikuko, and we came to a really tiny street. I mean, just as small as between me and this wall here. And there's no cars. <laughs> and so I just stepped across, half, and she said, no! And I was like, there's nobody here. And she said, yes, Tenku, but first of all, at that time I was a school teacher. She said, first of all, what if a child saw you do that? <coughs> And they said, oh, the teacher stepped. So that means it's okay for me because they're looking to you as an example. And now that I have robes, right, even more, what if somebody saw me do that and then copied and then boom, they're dead. And it's kind of my fault in a way. <laughs> so she, what she said was, um, Tinku, but don't you see? That's a blind corner. And if a car were to come around that blind corner and see you in the crosswalk, it would cause them a lot of distress and they would be shocked and scared. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so what can we do in our lives, in our day-to-day -day life this week and this month and from now? Acknowledging that it's not about me crossing the crosswalk. It's also about the car. It's about the little kid across the street. It's about the whole system. So what can I do to help others 
to offer the generosity, because it really is generous, of freedom from fear. And in this atmosphere right now in the, in the world that's so fear heightened, I think that's a really pragmatic thing to do. Because the more that we Zen practitioners with a little something, a little presence cultivated by being still, the more that we can offer that, the better, play, the better the world becomes around us, the less fear there is in the world. And that is generous practice. And as we know, in practicing generosity, the more we practice offering generosity to others, the more it comes back to ourselves. So it still helps me, too. It helps me to open my heart. It helps me to live in a safer world. It helps me to be nicer to the car driver in the future. So just like take that little individualistic bubble and stretch it. And if you can, stretch it farther. In fact, stretch it as far as you can reach in all directions, this way, this way, up, down, inside, outside, and all around. And realize that all of this is oneness, preaching facing oneness. As we touch all of the world around us, we bow, to the Buddha, and likewise to ourselves. Thank you. We have just a couple of minutes for questions. I'll get you just a second. Yes? So when your friend, in the context of your relationship, pointed this out to you, she was probably experiencing some internal distress about what you might do. And in a, in a sense, she's dealing with her own setting a limit, trying to explain to you how problematic this could be. And I think a lot of conflict occurs when you try to speak up uh, in the face of an injustice to people who can't receive it. And I wondered if you could speak to that, because that's mm-hmm. you know, where you, you want to speak truth to power. Right. But those with power can't be receptive. And how do you how do you how do you negotiate that? I thought a lot about this with the guy. Um, how could he receive it? I think if I were in a more spacious place, which I wasn't, I was that day I was really exhausted. Um, I would have talked to him, but not about the porn, <laughs> about anything. So what somebody told me, um, a friend of mine is a uh, counselor for incarcerated men who are incriminated for sexual offenses against children. So I can hardly think of another population that might be more challenging to work with. And he said how he did it was he found something to genuinely like about each one of them. Even if it was like one thread, a color in their shirt, but that he really heartfelt, genuinely liked. And he used that as an end. So I think um, 
you, you can't go for you're wrong and this policy is wrong and your views are wrong and you should just, you know, drop off the face of the earth because you're wrong. But if you, generally if you ask people about their kids, then they soften a little. And then, you know, how was your day? I'm really tired. You have to build it. You can't just drop in and do it. You have to build it. And that's, again, where we can't wall ourselves off. It doesn't mean that we have to um, address everything all the time so straight on. But if we're always building, you know what, when we're in the car, we can let people go first. And that builds. Or if we're at work and the person next to us has really different political views from us, just something as simple as you go on a trip, then you just give them a little gift and just let that be enough until the next step um, shows up. And those steps are, well, they come. You just have to watch for them. You have to always look for that little in. And then when you find it, use it. But don't, don't try to force it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Not easy. I mean, if I can ask more specifically, yes, I was can. just going to bring up this instance that I just read about, where Scott Pruitt, the current EPA administrator, he stopped uh, flying. He stopped flying coach and started flying first class. He said at first it was because the environment had grown too toxic, and then the specific anecdote that was given was that passenger in coach had yelled at the environment. Um, so, so I mean, and I feel like you did just address this specific question just more generically, but it's like, do you, is the appropriate response in, I mean, like, that's a fairly extreme situation, a direct encounter with someone endangering Right, world. right. Um, is the appropriate response just, like, silence because nothing can be done, really? I thought about that a lot, too. Like, what if I had been sitting by Scott Pruitt yesterday, and I had my chance, you know, I think you really have to cultivate presence, cultivate practice. Um, Samdong Rinpoche, uh, who's the former um, prime minister of Tibet, often said, um, unless you have a compassionate mind and you're not influenced by anger and hatred, your mere physical nonviolence is not nonviolence. So can I speak to Scott Pruitt with nonviolence, i.e. without hatred and without anger? I think it's possible, but it's hard if we differ. You know, if I agree with him, then yes, I could. But we can, we can keep working on that and keep trying it out on easier targets, like the person at work. And then we work, you know, we keep working on it. And when we have our chance, maybe we could. Or maybe it takes, you know, maybe I have to talk to him for a few hours and then finally I have a chance to say, you know, what about, you know, the native people's feelings of spirituality and the you know, Bears Ears monument? How, what's going on with that, Scott? You know, and see what he says. <laughs> and then just prepare to listen. Sometimes people just need to talk first and then they're going to let you. If they feel heard, you can get pretty far. Um, maybe just we're kind of pushing it. One more? Okay. So you had. Oh, and I, just, I, I can't see you over here, so I just want to oh. be conscious that I'm not. Okay. Sorry. Oh, I was just thinking, I've been thinking of Scott Pruitt uh, along for a year or so, and I noticed uh, about a week ago 
he just barely but started to say, well, yeah, I mean, it's getting warmer. Okay. I'm like, okay, I'm going to email him and tell him, thank you. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Scott. I right, celebrate you. him. Yeah. In your heart, too. <laughs> Yeah, that must be huge for him to do. Yeah, yeah. so I, I don't know because I don't know him. But... Kind of be like, I'm with you on this. <laughs> yeah, but he's kind of far because he's, he's, you know, he's up here. He's a, you know, leader in the country. But we can find Scots everywhere, and we don't have to preach to them. <laughs> we can preach to ourselves. You know, like how could I best hear this if I were him? And by exchanging self and other. By, by trying that out, how can I hear this message the best if I were this person? And maybe he's scared to fly. I don't I mean, can't have been pleasant. So. All right. Thank you so much. And I think this afternoon we have a, a workshop on compassion and equanimity and really have a chance to dig into this a little bit more. So if you're interested, then please come.